Take a network break. Help yourself to a couple of virtual donuts as we take a bird's eye view of the latest networking and IT news. We'll cover a new product from Arista Networks, financial results from Cisco and Palo Alto, a space networking update, and more. We're sponsored today by IT Pro TV. You can start or grow your IT career with online IT training from IT Pro TV. Learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job. Visit itpro.tv slash network break and get 30% off all plans. That's itpro.tv slash network break. Uh, and by the way, mark your calendars for a December 13th for a live stream event with the Packet Pushers and sponsors Dell Technologies. We're going to be talking about DPUs and the future of distributed infrastructure. There'll be six short, informative sessions on topics including what network engineers need to know about DPUs, accelerating distributed workloads on DPUs, and how VMware's Project Monterey will affect infrastructure and more. You can sign up for free. It's a live event at packetpushers.net slash livestream. That's packetpushers.net slash livestream. Uh, one last thing, at the end of the news, we have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with VMware. We're going to explore an SD-WAN deployment um, with CoEvolve. That's a VMware partner that worked with a customer in the automotive industry. Uh, this customer needed to share large CAD files between global sites. Traditional MPLS wasn't cutting it, so we're going to talk about how SD-WAN helped solve that problem. Yeah, it's interesting discussion. It's not often we get to talk with VMware about their SD-WAN strategy. There's a few tricks in there that we hadn't thought about. Mm. And it's always good to have a customer story because that kind of makes it more real. That does, yeah. All right, so let's dive into some news. First, Arista Networks has announced a new network automation offering called the Arista Continuous Integration Pipeline. The offering, which competes against the likes of Juniper Abstra, builds off pre-validated Arista network designs and helps organizations develop an automation workflow that includes continuous design, integration, and testing. It's got a lot of moving parts. It's building off of Arista's EOS network operating system, its Cloud Vision management software, and Arista's network data lake. This data lake collects and analyzes network and device state, packet and flow data, and device telemetry. Yeah, lots of moving parts in here. And they're, a lot of them are open source, and they're quite uh, open about that. Mm -hmm. So they're saying that, you know, we've taken a lot of open source technologies and stitched them together for you. Uh, and they talk about building a multi-tenant data, multi-modal data lake. Trust Arista to always come up with fancy terms for something that's just <laughs> the same. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but basically, they're building an offsite data store that collects data from the network, which and they call this thing the NetDL, which is basically the same as their EOS data infrastructure and all that sort of stuff. And they're drawing all sorts of, you know, fairly stretched sort of uh, justifications that it's just the same as what we were doing before, but we're just doing it this way with AI. Um, but what is interesting is they're using a lot of third-party sources for that data lake. Did you see that? I didn't notice that, actually. Yeah, I was digging into it. And they talk a lot about um, the data lake is not only going to be data they collect from the customer network, but they're also going to be integrating third-party data sources when they look for anomaly detection and configuration detection mm -hmm. and threat uh, NDR, network detection and response type stuff. So this really sounds more like, to me, felt like what Juniper's doing with MIST, uh, Arista is doing its own take on that, all very closely matching it at some level. Does that make sense? For the network data lake, yeah, or the NDL, I can see that. For this mm. uh, continuous integration uh pipeline offering that seems more like heading into competing against Abstra because they're yeah. talking, Arista's talking about, you know, we've got a set of validated designs, we build data models based on those validated designs, turn them into config, and then you can pump those configs into your uh, network devices and then go from there. Um, it's not quite the same as the Abstra solution, again, because it's got a bunch of moving parts mm. and I think there's more handwork to be done by individual network engineers than you'd have with other automated systems, but uh, it's Arista's first step into this uh data center automation environment. Yeah. In some sense, it looked a bit like uh, uh, somewhere between Appstra with the, you know, this is the this is the hardware 
configuration. We're open about the hardware, but it has to be put together this way and you're allowed to do these things. So they have right. intent-based modeling. They have the modeling architecture. Although Arista notably doesn't talk about, you know, having a uh, internal models or an abstraction or a, a digital, you know, digital copy of the network. It, I think that'll come. <laughs> well, they do. One thing is Arista stayed away from the the notion of intent. Uh, they're not ready to get into that fight yet about what intent is and isn't, and I no. appreciate that. Uh, they do. They are offering, they've got a, a SaaS offering called Cloud Test, which creates a virtual sandbox of your network. So okay. that digital twin idea where you can test configurations against uh, a, a near copy of your uh, production network, um, test them, validate them before you push them out. Uh, so they are getting into that space as well. Yeah, it does sound like Arista sort of waited back for this sort of product. I don't see people talking about intent-based networking anymore. It's mostly sort of modeling and AI and ML ops and all that sort of stuff, which is all fits into the intent-based, but nobody seems to want to mention it. It's just now that you mention it. Um, right. Maybe the intent <laughs> marketing language is sort of being superseded by the AI and ML language. Yeah, which I think is more relevant. It's certainly more fashionable in terms of marketing terminology to talk about AI ops and ML ops instead of intent-based networking, which is what it, you know, the, something the same, but different, if you like. But I think Arista's had time to look at what Cisco got wrong with ACI, mm -hmm. and then they've seen what Juniper's done with Mist. I think this is much more aligned with what Mist is doing and perhaps some of what Juniper Appster is doing, and then they've gone and put that into a product. So instead of racing to be first, they've taken time to look at what customers are buying in the competitive space and then put their own product out. That seems to be just behind the curve. Does that make sense? It does. And I think the other thing they're trying to do is, you know, with the uh, Juniper Appster, it was essentially you can have any network design you want as long as it's black. Uh, Juniper <laughs> has a similar approach, but they'll allow a little bit more customization and configuration to meet, you know, you know those corner use cases that most mm. networks have and maybe try to bring it into a brownfield environment, whereas Appster, you know, coming out of the gate was more about uh, a greenfield environment. So I think that's one of the ways Arista is hoping to differentiate the downside mm. is that when you uh, allow that customization, you get it comes at the cost of more components and more integration work from customers. So I think Arista's decided that that trade-off is worth it. And it's also interesting that they've built it in-house. So we saw Juniper buy uh, Appstra and yep. buy Mist and then extend it after the fact. Cisco ACI, they acquired um, a company to do that. Uh, but increasingly, NCME, it looks like right? a, it was in CME, yeah. Yep. But increasingly, it looks like uh, ACI is being set aside for the DCNM type products, which is the internally developed stuff. Uh, I don't believe Cisco is putting. It doesn't appear to be that ACI is getting a lot of focus within the org structure of Cisco. There's much more of a push into a different side of that, into the other intent-based networking product, but they never called it that. Um, and they're also talking a lot about training models to produce autonomous virtual assistants. So they're talking about AI, you know, AI ops or ML ops or this idea that there are certain things that they can create models for by training off the data lake and then have a high level of confidence that they can be used to do work or to tell you that something's wrong. Mm -hmm. So monitoring, uh, they're talking here like network detection and response, WIPs, uh, Wi-Fi intrusion prevention systems, quality of experience monitoring, anomaly detection, fail prediction. And so... This sounds really familiar to like tools like Thousand Eyes and Kentic to me at one level, but then in another level, it's got all the potentially, if it works, has all the advantages of, you know, Juniper Mist and Juniper Appster when they come together. So I think Arista's playing a long game here with this. 
Yeah, and I, I think Arista's strategy has been to minimize, you know, buying third-party companies and trying to incorporate them into Arista because they really focus on the value of EOS as their primary code base, uh, which mm. is, I think, one of the reasons they're building this in-house. Uh, and that also, uh, a point I want to bring up, another differentiator between Arista and Appstra is that Appstra, you can run a lot of different network OSs uh, on the uh, underneath Appstra. Uh, for this mm. uh, Arista solution, it's all EOS. It's got to be uh, Arista only. At yeah, least for the so time being. The Cisco sales model. You buy our <laughs> hardware and our software. Yes. Uh, whereas Appstruck would can happily work on Dell switches with Sonic or, you know, white box and Sonic if that's your that's your your choice. Yeah. Right. Mm. All right, links in the show notes. Uh, if you want to get more details, we'll move on. Cisco has announced its intention to build a new center in Spain for the design of advanced semiconductors. It's going to be co-located at an existing Cisco building in Barcelona. Uh, Cisco didn't say how much it's spending, but it did mention two government programs, the EU CHIP Act and Spain's Recovery and Economic Transformation of Microelectronics and Semiconductors Project. Uh, Reuters notes that billions of euros in government subsidies are available from the project. It didn't say whether a specific sum is being allocated to Cisco, but I would guess that Cisco is getting a little money under the table here or over the I table. I would say so. De definitely being motivated by free money. Um, it will be noted that uh, I did some digging into this and apparently Cisco announced this design center in Barcelona back in 2014 and finally opened it in 2019, um, as best as I can tell. So you can see the announcement of the launch and then you, you search around and then all of a sudden you see it set up. So it took five years to get this open. That's pretty good. It does take these things a long time. In other words, there was money on the table, but it took a long time to negotiate the government and the process probably to get this on the ground. Now that it's there, they can tap into government funds to for various activities. It's a little hard to imagine that Barcelona is a center of silicon design, Drew. I don't know if there's a university. I wasn't able to find if there was a university program where they're training up engineers with the necessary skills to do silicon design. So maybe this is one of those chicken and egg things. You start to put a vendor down there and they send in a few silicon design engineers or there's a few who happen to live in that town. And then the university say, hey, there's a place for that we can start up a program around mm -hmm. silicon. And then mm -hmm. hire some. Does that sort of, I mean, that, that's what this feels like in the sense, like they've got this lab innovation center, as they call it. Um, what do you do with it when it's running? You know, so this might be just a, a bit of a pie in the sky thing. And there's some money on the table. So grab that and see if it works. I mean, when you say Silicon Design, Spain is not one of the countries that immediately leaps to mind as a, as a center for that. And obviously, Spain would like to change that. Uh, there is a huge push from US and European governments to rehome more chip design and manufacturing. Mm. Uh, as we get, you know, we see the increasing tensions between uh, Western governments and China. So I guess it's no surprise that there's money being allocated for this. And mm -hmm. Spain wants to be a part of it, which makes perfect sense because I think this is going to be a growing industry for, uh, you know, uh, Western countries who want to bring more of that back on their shores. So, you know, why not throw yeah. a little money Cisco's way and see what happens? Yeah. The key here is that chip design requires hundreds of engineers usually to design chips. It's not a one, right. like a team of five people ripping open source software off the shelf to start doing stuff. And that also means that you need university programs to train people in the specific skill sets that are going around. So there's a an interesting loop here. That's why TSMC um, is so successful in Taiwan is because there's so much of it there that there's a whole, I mean, they, they churn out tens of thousands of engineers every year with the silicon tra training in mm -hmm. manufacturing silicon, designing silicon, all that stuff, researching silicon. And I mean, it's not like, a, you know, a couple of classes. I'm talking tens of thousands of engineers every sure. year yep. churning out of Taiwanese universities that can then go and work in, 
you know, these huge fabric, 24 hours a day plants. I mean, would you want to go and do a four to six year degree and then graduate and then spend 10 years climbing the tree to work 24, 24-7 shift tending those machines? <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> <laughs> not really. But I, I do take your point. That does sound like a chicken and egg thing. You've, you've got to start somewhere. So why not mm. get a partnership, you know, if you're a government with a brand name like Cisco to start this and maybe it will spur investment, spur, you know, yeah. interest in, in the university side to start training uh, folks to, mm-hmm. to work in, in silicon design and manufacture. Yeah. Yeah. And the reverse is also true. It can just be a massive boondoggle and nothing happens. So <laughs> let's hope it goes the way they want. Yep. Right. The money's well spent somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Moving on. Apple has spent $450 million on infrastructure to support emergency texting via satellite. Uh, much of that money has gone to a satellite services company called Global Star. Global Star operates 24 low Earth orbit satellites and a number of base stations. Uh, Apple is making emergency texting available on its iPhone 14 model. This is a space networking story, of course. The idea that you can send text directly from your Apple handset via a satellite with no intermediate is actually quite amazing. But we talked mm-hmm. about it uh, back when Apple announced it and dug into that a little bit. I think the interesting part here is that Apple claims that this is an investment. By any measure of the word investment, that is not what it is. This is um, paying suppliers for products that they need to get. So <laughs> you know, Apple needs satellites to make specific features available en masse for a huge customer base. They can't you know, if you're Global Star and you've got a satellite up there, you need to allocate frequencies and retune your satellites and work out downlinks. So some of the money is going to people with base stations. And Apple's not investing. It's just prepaying for a massive amount of capacity. So it's not an investment. They're not taking a – it's a real slight of tongue here to say, you know, if I'm Global Star, you're going to say, well, I have to do this much work to make this happen. I can't take your business unless you give me – this amount of capital up front. You have to give me a down payment for me to start work so I can buy the raw materials, right? Right. That's what this is. This is not an investment. Apple's not buying into Global Star or any of these other companies. It's basically prepaying for some of its service, as it does with most other things. It prepays something like billions of dollars with TSMC ahead of getting all of those chips that it makes and, and it gets priority on the TSMC fab lines. And in China, it prepays so that the, there's enough cash flow up for them to start up the production lines. And it's, it's exactly that. It's not an investment at all. <laughs> and that's my main beef with this. Like, uh, amazing. I can send a an SOS text message from my phone using the special software app to find out where the satellite is and point the phone at it and the message goes. On the other hand, yeah, call it what it is. Don't don't exaggerate like this. It's a bit, bit of a problem. The the announcement does kind of also have a lot of, uh, I think the Apple's hoping to squeeze some PR value out of it because there's a lot of language about how they're putting money into a U.S. company and helping to develop this essential infrastructure for emergency services, blah, blah, blah. See how generous we are, you know, throwing our money around. There is that feel to it as well. <laughs> I mean, let's face it. This is a feature that just your phone gets. So, you know, and they're spending five, $450 million now and more in the future to make that possible. That is admirable in its way, but sure. it's not an investment. It's a straight up just ordering the service and getting it provisioned. That's not, it's not, you know. I, yeah. I also wonder though, this seems like there's got to be more to this than just emergency texting because I, I don't know how many people are going to be like, I can't really decide between a, an Android and an iPhone. Oh, emergency texting if I'm lost in the woods sometime. Okay, yeah. iPhone. But I, I think probably Apple's intending on making satellite connectivity more of a regular feature going forward. And so emergency texting is a way to dip their toe in the water. And at the meantime, they can make themselves sort of look like they're concerned about your safety while they're doing it. 
Yeah, I, I think it's a good selling feature in the sense that it, you know, keeps sustains the demand for the handset. But yeah, my, you know, yay for them. We talked about it and said it was great. And there's going to be more <laughs> when they start, you know, you'll have a low data connection to satellites. Once the satellites, so Global Star is probably going to be putting up new satellites with new antennas and, and data equipment to be able to get, and you'll have a low speed data connection. So be able to do other things with that connection over time. But for now, it's just a couple of SMSs. Right. But, uh, you know, that's what they're paying for. That's not, <laughs> do you know, not, I understand. they didn't buy Global Star for $450 million. It's just a pre-order. Yeah. yeah, it's just spending money, which is what companies do. Hmm. Uh, as a side note, uh, if you're interested in, in satellite networking, space, internet, uh, the Internet Society is putting out a new white paper about this topic. It includes basics on how satellite networking works, the new opportunities created by satellite internet, and also raises questions about business models, affordability, and other issues. Uh, if you're interested, you can get a copy at internetsociety.org slash packetpushers, internetsociety.org slash packetpushers. It'll be free to download. Uh, and a quick break to tell you about our sponsor today, IT Pro TV. IT Pro TV is online technical training to help you start or grow your IT career. For instance, cybersecurity has more than 500,000 open cybersecurity roles. You can become a CyberSec Pro with online training from IT Pro TV. If security is not your thing, that's no problem. IT Pro TV has you covered with all sorts of courses across the IT spectrum, from CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft. There's more than 5,800 hours of on-demand training. Instructors are live every day, and shows go studio to web in just 24 hours. Courses are listed by category, certification, and job role, so you can find what you're looking for. You can also learn from wherever you are on whatever platform you like. Uh, you can stream IT Pro TV's courses live and on-demand from Roku, Apple TV, PC, or their iOS or Android apps. So learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash networkbreak and get 30% off all plans. That's itpro.tv slash networkbreak. Use the promo code networkbreak at checkout and get 30% off all plans. Uh, back to the news. Palo Alto Networks is going to pay $195 million in cash for CIDR security. CIDR makes software to check the security and configuration of tools used in CICD pipelines. Uh, Palo Alto is positioning this as a play in the software supply chain security market. Palo Alto says a CICD pipeline could have hundreds of tools connected to it, uh, but orgs often have little visibility into whether the configuration or vulnerabilities within these tools could lead to software being compromised in their CICD pipeline. So they've uh, splashed down some cash for this company. Yeah, super interesting to think of infrastructures, including a set of tools so that whenever a developer does something, it automatically starts to look into what that software does. So in this case, uh, CIDR is actually looking at uh, when the software is compiled or checked in, it looks at all of the um, dependencies in that. So for an example, if you're writing a JavaScript and you're pulling a bunch of models from uh, 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 modules from NPM, it will then be tracking whether those modules have known vulnerabilities and whether the versions that you're importing mm -hmm. have some sort of security problem or server, you know, known problems are sound, and then flag it to you in the GitHub commit, which is super interesting, you know, I think. Um, and is that infrastructure or is that developer stuff? And then there's a really interesting crossover here that Palo Alto is saying, well, that's just part of your security infrastructure. And what was yesterday's product is now just a SaaS feature. So it's literally just, uh, it's been attached to Chekhov, which is a product they bought uh, in a couple of months ago, which um, also does the same sort of thing. And CIDR does, uh, between CIDR and Chekhov, you're getting this sort of complete software supply chain validation or software uh, bill of material so that you know what software is being done. And it's sort of like an automated thing, like how many modules am I using from open source? Well, here they all are automatically checked and validated and prepared for me. Right. And I think this is super interesting to see that as infrastructure and not as a developer tool. 
I mean, to me, the fact that uh, Palo spending almost $200 million in cash uh, is a sign that Palo sees a ton of anxiety among its customer base about mm. supply chain security. And I can imagine, you know, a salesperson walking into a customer and saying, solar winds, and then the check practically <laughs> writes itself. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, be, but I think this is more about uh, open source, particularly, and mm -hmm. pulling in open source modules. If you're using this version of Apache or this version of OpenSSL, or if you're drawing this NPM module and then suddenly, somebody jacks that NPM, you know, we've seen these hijacks of various modules in public repositories, which have been negatively impacting, you know, people have done unusual things. And this is in that vein. But that's one way, you know, to validate that they're safe, but also to create a bill of materials and say, you know, if somebody comes to you and says, do we use this module? Because if it is, we've got a problem. Or can you mm -hmm. show to an order to what software module you're using? Mm -hmm. well, today, you that would be very difficult. Right. You know what I mean? Right, so right. this is, you know, this is kind of like that asset management for software, or as they call it, software bill of materials for some weird reason that I don't understand. Yeah, yeah, I think it's an interesting pickup for Palo Alto and, and shows how, I guess they're calling it shift left in terms of security, moving security yeah. further into the development <laughs> yeah. pipeline, which absolutely makes sense because that's often where problems reside. Well, the security teams often that that manage the the firewalls or the security strategy would also be interested in this because what do you configure your security infrastructure to do? What are you managing your threat detections to detect? Mm -hmm. This. Mm -hmm. And this makes more sense to move. Effectively, you're putting the firewall in where the where the problem comes. You're not fixing it, you know, later somehow, or these things often can't be fixed. And again, they call it shifting less. I say yesterday's product is today's SaaS feature. You know, just what was a security product yesterday that it was standalone is now just a feature in a bigger solution. And mm -hmm. that's what I thought was happening here. All right. Uh, moving on, tech giants, if you haven't noticed, are laying off thousands of workers ahead of the holidays. Uh, outside of the bloodbath at Twitter, companies such as Meta have announced 11,000 job cuts. Uh, Cisco is the latest. They have announced layoffs of 4,100 employees. I don't think it's an announcement. It's a rumor. Um, the local Silicon Valley lag, a Silicon Valley business journal, uh, says they believe. So it's not announced. They just say plans. Uh, I see. Okay. So it's not necessarily true. And, you know, sometimes these things, when they're reported, re-reported by somebody on Forbes, which is a website I generally don't trust, which is why I went looking. Uh, and so I went looking for the source and then found it. So it's a local magazine and they're really taking the angle that Cisco's actually shrinking its real estate, which they're not very happy about. But I have to think that this is more distributed work. Cisco's very committed to making the life of its staff better. Uh, they're very much the anti-Elon Musk of nobody works from home. Cisco is very much encouraging that. But equally, as they continue to reduce their headcount, they don't need the real estate. And they've also pushed a lot of work offshore, you know, you know moved a lot of business units into India, Indonesia, a lot of the tech, tech and so forth is done in different countries, Vietnam and so forth. So we're actually in an interesting situation where Cisco will be selling off real estate, but not getting smaller. Now, Keep in mind, the NASDAQ is also down 30% this year, roughly. Give or take, you go look at the NASDAQ and it's down 30% because some, and some tech companies have fallen by 70 to 80% without match changes. Like their revenue is still the same, their business is still the same. You know, all the high profile ones aside, you know, the, right. obviously. Uh, but, you know, so if you take, for example, Cloudflare. Cloudflare is down 77% over the last year, one year period, not, not the, year the to date. The stock price? The stock revenue. price. Yep. The stock price, okay. Uh -huh. But the company is generating more revenue. It grew 47% year over year, <laughs> surpassing one billion. Nothing's changed. It's just its share price is now off 77%. So 
Um, and so, of course, they're going to be laying off staff as well. And I think it's sort of become a fashion. It's the little black dress of tech. You know, when the when the tech market drops, everybody starts to lay off staff. And then you see these other companies laying off staff as well, because, well, if he's doing it, I should be doing it as well. Investors sort of like that. Like, not every investor understands what they're doing. And sometimes they say, well, if they're doing it, why aren't you doing it? And so Cisco will lay off some staff. But as usual, Cisco's doing it just before Christmas. Lovely. Remember last year they did 10,000 layoffs just in the in the second or third week of December last year? Mm-hmm. Just before mm-hmm. Christmas. And I thought there's a great present. That's- <laughs> you actually said last year. That's like, isn't it wonderful that Cisco's doing that for their staff so they can have a miserable Christmas? So I Happy just want to call holidays. that out. Happy yes. holidays. Yeah. Happy holidays. Right? Mm. Couldn't wait till January. Mm. Yeah, I, get, we're going to talk about some uh, financial results uh, in a few minutes, and we've been covering financial results the past few weeks, and they've generally been pretty good, which mm. uh, to me feels like this, you know, all of this sort of uh, gloom and doom about a coming recession, it, it, just an indicator that often the stock market is based on feels uh, n- rather than necessarily hard data. Uh, it's based on my future value. <laughs> you I call it future feels. Value. I call they it feels. Call it- <laughs> Right. <laughs> Tell me the difference, all right? <laughs> there is no difference. It is. I feel this company's going somewhere. I'll pay extra to buy. It's exactly that. But you call it future value if you want to sound important. This future value does sound better in the textbook than the fields. Yes. That's right. <laughs> all right. Uh, moving on. Uh, NVIDIA has announced Metro X3 to increase the long-haul range of InfiniBand switches up to 25 miles or 40 kilometers. Uh, Drew, you know my enduring love for odd layer two technologies. I think I've talked about them often enough. And uh, I just wanted to, this one caught my attention because there's, most people have a widely held view that Ethernet is the only L2 technology around today and that all the others have passed on. And except that InfiniBand continues to live on, albeit in very limited use, you have to really want it, if you like. Right. Uh, but having said that, NVIDIA announced 400 gig InfiniBand speeds back in late 2021 and shipped a new series of products called the Quantum 2 Fabric and a range of new adapters. Now, this is all part of its Mellanox acquisition, of course. Right, yep. And if you dig a bit deeper into much of NVIDIA's um, AI HPC stuff, so if you're going out to buy an AI, AI solution from NVIDIA, you'll get their A100 AI platforms, which is a range of hyper-converged hyper uh, platforms. You get the storage and the compute and the the GPUs and the, all that stuff, right? And that's all connected with InfiniBand, not Ethernet. So um, what made this interesting was that they've now added to their Metro X platform uh, support for 100 gigabit per second dense wave division multiplex modules. So this is a really low-tech solution. So effectively what they've done is created some models where they can just put these DWDM modules in Uh and you can get high bandwidth long-haul connections between two data centers. I think it's 25 miles and 40 kilometers. Yep. Uh, Pretty, very much where we were with Ethernet I don't know, 20 years ago, <laughs> 15 years ago. So, <laughs> not exactly an innovation, but, you know, fair dues. Um, Mellanox is also uh, a company that did buy a uh, silicon photonics company, so they do actually probably manufacture these themselves, potentially. I don't, I'm not uh, close enough to what Mellanox is doing to know whether that's true or not, so would need checking. Right. Uh, yes, and nice to know that InfiniBand lives on, at least in certain use cases. Yes, it's very interesting. If you're interested, go and look up Wikipedia for InfiniBand and think about what some of the features of InfiniBand and whether it's for, it's for you, because it's got quite a unique product. <laughs> All right, we'll finish up with some financial results first. Cisco, they reported results for their first quarter of fiscal 2023. The company had revenues of $13.6 billion, up 6% year-over-year. Net income was $2.7 billion, down 10% year-over-year. Uh, product revenue continues to drive Cisco's business. Product revenue uh, was up 8% year-over-year. Service revenue was flat. Yeah, so Cisco's been struggling with income. Income was down 10%. 
but it's also sitting on top of a billion dollars more inventory than it had before. So remember when we talked about the supply chain problems, that companies would probably bulk up their inventories and that would have a long-term impact. And that mm-hmm. is what we're seeing here. In, However, product revenue is up year over year, but service revenue is flat, but recurring revenue is up 7%. So that is people have shifted to subscription models to acquire Cisco products. Cisco's pushing it very, very hard. Mm-hmm. They're now taking uh, an average, they're now on a run rate of 23 billion per year. What that means is annual run rate is if we took today's quarter and multiplied it, projected it out for the rest of the year, it would be 23 billion out of the 50 odd billion that Cisco makes. So it's really driving very hard into switching customers over to those subscriptions. And this would suggest that Cisco is getting close to 50% of its revenue is now recurring revenue. And that's also confirmed by its remaining performance obligations, which is how much outstanding revenue it's sitting on today. And it's sitting on $30 billion worth of revenue, which always makes me think like, um, you know, if you know you've got $30 billion coming up over the next, you know, period, remaining performance obligations, mm-hmm. are you motivated to continue working and innovating or are you actually motivated in reverse? And this is something I've asked a few times, but I haven't mentioned it lately. I'm just not entirely sure that this is a good thing. Certainly good from the point of view, if you're running Cisco, your shareholders know how much money you're going to make. You can right. assure them, you know, how, what's going on and all that sort of stuff. But I'm not entirely sure that the long term is is positive, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, by business unit, revenues were up 12% for routing and switching versus last year and up 9% for security, IoT, and collaboration. Revenues were both down, uh, but just by single digits compared to last year. Yeah, and there was nothing unusual about what Cisco had. They had a good quarter, beating expectations by a little bit, as they always do. They always seem to find just that little bit somehow. <laughs> and uh, it's also interesting that customers aren't leaving Cisco in volume to buy other products if they can't ship. So customers are willing to wait and say, well, if that's just the way it is, and then sit down and wait. So Yeah. All right, uh, moving on, Palo Alto Networks also announced financial results for their first financial quarter of 2023. The company had revenues of $1.6 billion for the quarter, up 25% year over year. They also had net income of $20 million. Uh, last year at this time, the company had lost $103 million, so uh, Palo Alto's on the right side of the books. Uh, people were talking about a monster quarter, which will give you an idea. And like the, the, a lot of the traders rarely use bloviated words like that. But what's probably the most stunning thing here is that Palo Alto outgrew the more than the security market overall. So security mm-hmm. market is growing substantially, mm-hmm. but Palo Alto is growing faster than the overall security market across the board. So it's growing faster than its competitors and any of the other incumbents that are in the industry. Uh, Nikesh Akora, who is, sorry, Nikesh Aurora, who is the CEO of the company, says, our customers have been in a journey with us. Initial deals give them comfort with our products and help to distinguish our abilities from our competition, leading to customers seeing an opportunity to consolidate into one of our platforms. As they get comfortable with Strata, Prisma, or Cortex, and this is this families of product that we were talking Mm -hmm. about before, we see them looking at further consolidation across multiple platforms from us, and this has allowed us to transition our deal sizes with satisfied customers, and we expect it to continue. So in the speech to analysts, he actually talks extensively about multiple customers who've gone from, say, Palo Alto firewalls, spending you know a few million, to suddenly becoming six-figure, seven-figure, nine-figure customers of the wow. company. Mm-hmm. So they're making big money. They've won a big US federal contract and so forth. So um, now Fortinet had tough numbers. If you remember, we talked about them a couple of weeks ago, over the last couple of weeks. They had tough numbers, but that was because they didn't make the overly large numbers that was expected. They still did very well, profitably and everything. But the market had decided that Fortinet was going to deliver 
like way up here, and when it didn't, they sold down. Didn't have future value, Drew. <laughs> the feels weren't good, yeah, for the next quarter. <laughs> the feels weren't yes. good, yeah. The feels exactly weren't good. Right. Yeah. So, uh, whereas Palo Alto has come in way better than what people felt was going to happen, and so they the share price has popped quite nicely for Palo. Yeah, we were just talking about uh, you know Cisco that split between uh, product and service with Palo Alto. It's the reverse. Palo Alto had thirty three hundred thirty million in product revenue compared to one point two billion in subscriptions and support revenue. So Palo has uh, flipped that, and I think that's actually where they want to be moving away from being rely from relying on hardware sales, getting into more of the subscription and software sales, uh, mm. and then uh, revenue numbers uh, show that. Yeah, I mean Palo Alto's share price is still down from its peak over the last year. So, but only by 3%, so, which is pretty good. Not so, bad. Not bad. Not bad. Yeah, it's been up to as high. It's had a peak of over 200, 205, and it's now back at about 165, something like that. So they've had a very good year compared to, say, Cloudflare, who was down 80%. So That's yeah. tough. Mm, making money is back in is, is the future of technology, it would say. <laughs> what do you think? What do you know? Who knew? Who knew? Who knew? Mm. <laughs> All right, well, that wraps up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our sponsor, TechBytes conversation with VMware and CoEvolve about their global SD-WAN deployment. Uh, that's coming right up. Today on the TechBytes podcast, we explore an SD-WAN deployment. Our sponsor is VMware, and we're speaking with CoEvolve, a VMware partner that worked with a customer in the automotive industry. This customer needs to share large CAD files between global sites, but its traditional MPLS WAN isn't cutting it. Our guest is Kieran Roach. He is co-founder and CTO of CoEvolve. Uh, Kieran, welcome to the podcast, and can you give us a brief overview of CoEvolve and your partnership with VMware? Absolutely. So at Coevolve, we're really a purpose-built business for enterprises that are trying to make transitions like this. So we, we set the business up in 2014 because we could see so much change happening in enterprise networks, but not enough of a focus on the, the service model used to take enterprises from the old to the new. So we started looking at the viable technologies out there. We had a very early partnership with VeloCloud back in 2015 mm -hmm. and one of the first partners to really deploy that globally. And we've really built the partnership with VMware from that. So we've deployed it in about 80 countries today, many thousands of sites. And um, our clients are using our telco independent approach. So we use about 500 telcos and ISPs in that underlay layer and really optimizing it down to the site level to get the right choice of providers at each of the locations and then manage it using a whole range of intelligent services across the top. So that's really our core competency is helping enterprises on that type of journey. Okay. And VeloCloud was the SD-WAN company that VMware acquired and folded into their networking group. So let's talk about your, the customer, Auto Pacific Group. What was the state of their WAN when they came to you? So they were in a pretty difficult situation when we first started working with them. They were uh, in the middle of essentially a demerger. So they were separating out certain regions of the business into their own autonomous networks. And like a lot of enterprises, all of the infrastructure that they had to through their locations was based on MPLS technology. And in the US or Western Europe, that's maybe okay. You can get a decent amount of bandwidth in many of your locations, but they had a lot of locations in really challenging geographies in Southeast Asia, remote parts of Australia and so on, where they were really capacity constrained. So they had uh, that MPLS connectivity, but they just weren't able to get the bandwidth that they needed to be able to run all of these modern applications that they were trying to migrate to as part of that business transition. So the network was really the piece that was holding them back, even though they had all these ambitious plans for what to do with the rest of IT, they just couldn't achieve that using the, the legacy infrastructure that they had. 
And that's a pretty common story, isn't it? That's uh, it's not just the MPLS or the traditional fixed WAN circuits. It's also the cost and the reliability. You get so little bandwidth at such high cost that you can't be flexible. You get locked in and you actually get a, a bit of a Stockholm syndrome where you feel like there's no way out, don't you? Yeah, and it's so true in these uh, markets where you, know, you kind of cringe when you see the price come from the telco and it comes with a three-year lock-in and all of the inflexibility that comes with that. So yeah, a lot of our mm. clients come with that history of you know, really having that painful relationship and then trying to work around it with you know, one optimization appliances and all sorts of tricks to try to squeeze every last kilobit per second out of yeah. the circuits. But yeah, it's pretty challenging. Fiddling around with cost to the to the nth degree and really just making it worse, not better. Yeah, I exactly. guess the second part of designing any SD-WAN is about the applications. So, And the applications are sort of related to the business problems. Were they doing just the usual, you know, email, sharing files, printing, or did they have more? They had uh, all of those and more. So uh, definitely part of the challenge was that even those applications are becoming more demanding. And you know, as they move to, to cloud-based platforms and your file share moves from an on-prem server to uh, OneDrive or something like that. So all of a sudden you create these new traffic flows that didn't exist before. But this business also had a whole extra set of challenges in the, the whole area of CAD files. So their business really depends on being able to transmit you know, large files, you know, often many gigabytes in size over the network. And again, very capacity constrained and, you know, high latency in many cases between these locations, that's sort of a recipe for poor performance for those types of transfers. So mm-hmm. they they were particularly focused on finding a solution for that so that they could just make their team. So the key one was large CAD files in yeah, really between was. remote yeah. sites, like factories yeah. in odd locations. That that's exactly not- it, yeah. Yeah, they're not connected right on the top of a fiber optic backbone and where they could buy a hundred gig circuit if they for you know little money. This is factories in the middle of nowhere, taking advantage of exactly. cheap land and low cost labor sort of thing. Yep, but very very poor connectivity along with it. So yeah, and these are it's not a, a side application. This is the the most <laughs> business the critical application. Yeah. That's what they need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I'm curious because I you know, I could see a telco saying well, MPLS is the perfect solution for your CAD needs because it is a private circuit as opposed to going over the internet, which is best effort. So, uh, you know, how did you bring SD-WAN to them and say, hey, we're going to we're gonna use the internet for this? Yeah, it's, I think that's a, a conversation we end up having with a lot of our clients. And what we see in that space is that the majority of innovation in terms of access technologies and just finding ways to stretch capacity, that's all happening at the edge with local providers. And in many cases, it's being done to support the residential demand. But if you're an enterprise that can shop around and find the right types of products, you can kind of piggyback on that and, and gain a lot of benefits from it. So we we started by demonstrating the the potential commercial and technical case to show we can go from really capacity constraints, sort of like two meg or four meg of, of MPLS capacity at some of these sites up to 10 times that capacity or more, and also show significant savings at the underlay at the same time. And we've got so much data from our previous deployments that we could show we're actually probably going to keep the, the end-to-end latency and packet loss and those sort of levels, at least on a par from where they were previously, if not improving it. So we're finding a lot of clients are really open-minded to that approach of taking an engineering-based approach to architecting the network. So instead of having an SLA that might pay you out $50 if the circuit performs poorly that month, you kind of ignore the the potential of that and build in the level of 
uh, resilience from uh, multiple connections and using different providers and growing mm-hmm. that capacity quite significantly. And then put the SD-WAN technology across the top to smooth out the gaps and the kind of brand. This is the use of any bandwidth anywhere. It's not just limited to a one carrier and their MPLS network and trying to run legacy routing protocols on the top. This is using SD-WAN load balancing, flow balancing across multiple types and, you know, that type of stuff. It really changes the game in that sense. It, it does. And we're huge yeah. proponents of that. And we mentioned using 500 providers. That's that's a real number out of our client deployments because they see the benefits of optimizing it down to that level and, and picking whatever works at that site. And if that's a low earth orbit satellite and combined with a 4 or 5G uh, cellular connection, maybe that's the best you can get at that location. But our approach allows them to have that flexibility if that's the right choice at that location. Uh, and you can incorporate SD-WAN into a 5G and a satellite connect, uh, connection? Yeah, we, we've got clients doing that today. And we mentioned this client being in the manufacturing vertical. That's true of a lot of our clients. In general, the more remote and the more challenging the connectivity requirements that the enterprise has, the better fit they are for this type of model because they're just so far off the the kind mm. of core network footprint for most of the telcos that they're really crying out for a better approach to this connectivity. I think the other value is the permission. You don't need to ask for permission. Like so many times when you're dealing with legacy WAN circuits, you have to beg them to come and install it at your site. Whereas if you're using public WAN bandwidth, you know, internet, there's no permissions. You just tell them you want it connected and they come in and connect it, you know, within a week or two. It's not like, you know, you have to wait for some special mystical spell to be cast from head office and (laughs) they bring out the magical device and install it locally. And you, you wait weeks or months for that. Yeah, it's true. And we do that all the time. We'll we'll find or a client will find a better deal on a circuit or a new technology becomes available. They can often just plug that into the the existing edge appliance mm. and the pool of bandwidth just gets bigger. You don't even have to schedule downtime or reboot devices or anything like that. It's uh you know, it's a really simple change that even a local admin type resource at an office can do. So yeah, it's a mm. world of difference compared to how it was previously with you know, engineers going on site with their console cables and, you know, dealing with the provider's device. And I, I, I don't miss device. that. I must say, I mean, I it, no disrespect. It did seem very romantic when I was in my early twenties, but it very quickly wore off. And uh, I do quite like that. What about other apps like video conferencing? So a lot of people say that this remote working and all using video services is a big deal. Is SD-WAN working for that in your experience? In, in our experience, it's again, a really key enabler for that. So we're seeing it now, you know, companies trying to entice workers back to the office and you've got so much more collaboration happening when those people are in the office, they're talking to half their team that's that's operating remotely. So again, you know, think back to the MPLS days, if you know, the word video conferencing was probably the most scary topic you bring up and you start looking at how many simultaneous channels you'd have and calls and mm. what bit rate it would be. None of that is is really applicable in the, the more modern collaboration platforms. The enterprises mm. and the users expect to just turn on their just Teams. Just to turn it Zoom on. And well, they get it at home. Work. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. You go home and, and, and Teams or Zoom works fine. They go into the office and then you have to use this weird thing and it just doesn't work the same. And yeah. I guess local breakout is a key issue here. It, it is. And, you know, mm. that's really... You know, one of the key use cases we see for SD-WAN is, is taking clients away from that closed private network where all of the, the breakout is done centrally and distributing that, breaking out locally, 
using maybe cloud security services along the way mm -hmm. to to do the inspection and filtering that you need to do, but you keep it as far away from your data center and your hub as you can. It just doesn't make sense to bring that traffic back to those locations anymore. So as you started rolling out SD-WAN with Auto Pacific Group, did they notice a difference? Did, did CAD performance improve? Did access to cloud improve? Yeah, so they saw pretty much immediate improvements across the board with those applications. So, you know, like a lot of businesses, they were quite uh, restricted in the past as to when they could use video and using policies to manage down resolution of calls, you know, video calls and so on. So they were able to offer much more flexibility to their team as a result. So they saw file transfer times improve dramatically. They were able to see much better use of those types of collaboration tools and really take full advantage of that cloud first approach that they were trying to adopt on a broader basis the the network stopped being an inhibitor to that and actually enabled a lot of those types of uh, of traffic flows and what about cost savings because in talking to other folks who have rolled that SD-WAN sort of the the aha moment is when they see the bill come in after they've either moved off MPLS or begin to move off MPLS. <laughs> it's got to cost more, doesn't it? got to cost more for all this goodness, right? <laughs> I know, right? And <laughs> It feels but, like you should. Luckily, it doesn't. And uh, I, I think that's especially true in some of these really remote geographies where hmm. the the cost per megabit per second of that bandwidth is just astrom astronomical on those private networks. So the hmm. client in this case was able to see some really significant savings sort of in the order of magnitude of 40% overall <laughs> even while achieving some of those really significant bandwidth increases. And, and that's a common story we hear across mm -hmm. the board when we go through these projects that you're, you're achieving huge funding, huge savings on the underlay that can then be used to fund the overlay component and the co-managed services mm -hmm. and all of the other and intelligence you put across the top. And you get visibility and monitoring and asset management as well. Uh, but f I will say that 40% is conservative. I've heard numbers of more in some cases, depending on yeah. your network and your situation and how you go about it. So, yeah. We, we, yeah, we see that. And we see clients that don't necessarily want to pocket all of those savings, but they'll invest mm. in the network or invest in the managed services at the same time so that the, mm. the total project TCO benefits are still very respectable, but they've achieved all those other benefits as well. So we definitely see clients go different yeah. directions. 10x bandwidth, cut 40% off the budget, and you've also got somebody else helping you to run and operate it. You get visibility, monitoring, asset management. We, I want to go back to the question around as, uh, security because you said local breakout is a very popular thing in an SD-WAN environment, and that tends to lead into a security discussion because if you're letting people or you want to let people break out to the internet locally. You don't want to backhaul that bandwidth over your SD-WAN. You just want to, you know, if it's internet bound, just let it go locally and let the, the internet provider handle that. Is, uh, ha have you been working with the, the VMware VelaCloud SASE product for the security? We have, yes. And again, that aligns well with where our clients are going. So we've had a lot of history in this space. You know, we've had a long partnership with some of the other cloud security providers and integrated that technology into the SD-WAN product probably for six years. So we know the, the use case pretty well. And for us, having that as a, an emerging area of functionality and sort of directly integrated into the SD-WAN product was pretty attractive because that's exactly the traffic flow that users want. They want to go directly from the branch office, take advantage of all that high capacity broadband connectivity they've got, but then have mm. consistent security policies and visibility across the organization then no matter what that user is doing or what office they're in. So that's, I think, a, a really interesting way forward. And again, aligns with where this client and a lot of other clients are going, that they want to 
take away those central bottlenecks. They want to be able to take advantage of cloud-based infrastructure, but you can't just have it in one place. It's got to be distributed. It's got to be able to deliver uh, a really mm. good level of performance, no matter where the user is, even if they're in some of those more difficult markets. I think it's interesting because you don't have to do the security admin on site. You can backhaul a lot of it out to the cloud, or you can choose to do it on site with the VMware SASE solution, right? Yeah. And we see clients do that all the time today. And there's always anomalies. There's local banking websites or government payroll systems that you can only access in country or off a specific IP. So having that flexibility to steer that traffic locally, directly over that circuit with that IP, but then everything else you can take centrally or we see clients even being more granular than that. They'll take something Mm. like all of the Microsoft traffic. And because there's all sorts of, uh, advanced threat protection built into that at an application layer, they'll say, let's bypass the cloud security, go straight to the nearest Microsoft pop and use Mm. again, the SD-WAN as sort of the the traffic director there to figure out what application is it, which way is it going to go and how's the, uh, the traffic going to be prioritized or whatever is being done from there. Hmm. So you get very granular traffic. So customers are actually doing that highly granular traffic control saying, oh, Microsoft traffic, no inspection, no security, just send it. It's Microsoft, it's whatever. Uh, but other stuff you're saying, no, definitely I want a different level of security or logging or DLP applied. Yeah, we, we see that all the time. And having mm. profile level control of that is a really big thing. So they can say, mm. apply it at a profile level. And then there's you know dozens or hundreds even of sites can inherit that within a couple of minutes. So yeah. because it's so the, easy, we're seeing them use it. And the central policy engine means that you have the same policy on every device. You don't. And even if you have exceptions, it's, it's, it's very clear where the exceptions apply. Yeah, that's it. And then we go beyond even what's in the product to do things like configuration, drift tracking and seeing where the site has deviated from the agreed standard and report back to the client on that. So, yeah, we're That's all within the Vela, within the SASE solution, within the VMware solution. It's not it, it, that's not a third-party product or some mystical incantation or a bunch of python scripts somebody wrote. That's uh that's part of our smart services across the top. Right. So we we've invested in a lot of systems to be able to take the data from the SD-WAN environments and then turn that back around into applications or modules that the client can consume. So either right, alerting okay. or reporting or so you're extending the, things like that. So Coevolve is extending the VMware solution. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, well, that does bring us to the end of our time with Kieran. Uh, there'll be links in the show notes that accompany this podcast to find resources to VMware and Coevolve if you want to get more information. Uh, in the meantime, thanks, Kieran, for joining us. And thanks to VMware for being a sponsor. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog, It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, see us on YouTube, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.